what I'm fascinated in is that artists today still uh, work within that frame of reductive abstraction, which is very hard. It's almost undefinable anyway because it's made up of... Um, it was back then in the 19, 1968 and it is now made up of several forms of abstraction, so minimalism, geometric abstraction, colour field painting, uh, conceptualism, yeah, conceptual art. And today artists are still working very much within that field and so I can't honestly say um, that well, it certainly wasn't my curatorial premise to uh, challenge that it, it doesn't come off the, the work that I'm showing today with this body of artists is purely to say this is a group uh, roughly um, curated in in under the term of um, reductive abstraction and these people are working today in 2018 and I wish to explore uh, why they you know what what are their artistic intentions yeah, what informs the work, what drives the artist and, you know, what are they seeking to impart? Hello, this is What Are You Looking At? and I'm Pip Stafford. You've just had artist and curator Anne Mestitz talking about her recent exhibition Beyond the Field Still. This exhibition was presented by Contemporary Art Tasmania and Moona Art Centre and featured 17 artists who work in hard edge, geometric, colour and flat abstraction across the two venues. In this episode we interview not only Mestitz, but celebrated Australian sculptor Ron Robertson-Swan who's best known for his controversial sculpture Vault, which now sits in the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art forecourt. And it's probably better known by its derogatory nickname, the Yellow Peril. We also talked to Beyond the Field Steel artist Michael Grave, who's a multidisciplinary artist whose practice takes in both abstract painting and sound, and whose sound work can also be heard in this episode. And finally, National Gallery of Victoria curator Beckett Rosenthal's. Mestitz used the then radical inaugural National Gallery of Victoria exhibition The Field as her cue, but it's Mestitz's own passion for and work in the field that spearheaded the responsive exhibition and public program series. But the question we have to ask first is why? Why curate this genre-based exhibition? what notions have been challenged by beyond the field still. I'm absolutely fascinated and I don't think I'll ever find the answer. The thing is, a lot of the questions I ask, I know there won't be an answer to. So I'm just really fascinated that we're looking at 15 years hence from when this form of art was considered in inverted commas new. There's a... We're, I myself am an artist working within that field and I just constantly question what what are our drivers? Why are we doing it? But we are actually driven to create artworks um, within this genre and that 
that in itself, I think, is really fascinating. And I think that was probably my primary intention in curating the exhibition. Hello. Hello, Ron. Hi. Hi, this is Pip from Contemporary Art Tasmania. How are you? Very well. That's good. Thanks so much for uh, answering a couple of questions for us. Um, Not at all. Let's see what. Let's see. You <laughs> may not thank me. Let's see what happens. So the first one is, what does makes you desire to make abstract work? Good heavens! That's now you. Only two questions, but of course it's so profound. I have to tell you the whole of my life. One, um, I uh, am absolutely passionate about colour. And um, colour um, is often compromised in uh, traditional um, painting, representational painting, um, because the brightness of the colour tends to flatten paintings. And traditional painting is about the illusion, the deep illusion of something on a flat surface. Um, and that's usually about shading, about light and dark. And that, for me, interferes with the nature of colour and the way it operates. Um, the other thing is, um, it seems to me that um, since Manet, um, the painting has become more and more uh, about its means, about paint and canvas on a flat surface and being literal about it. Painting just before Manet, the paint was almost an embarrassment and they tried to cover it up. Uh, with as many glazes and no edges and things like that, merely to create the illusion of a world on a flat surface. And that painting, at that point in history, went into serious decline. So for me, um, the most serious art in our time and that's from about the 19, early 1900s till now, has been abstract art. question around whether the visual arts uh, you know in a way has done a, a better job at um, commemorating a moment of energy uh, and compared to say the sounding arts uh, whether we 
want to call it experimental music, 20th century classical, or uh, which really would have been in, in 1968 would have been a, a moment before we'd call it sound art, for example. Um, I mean, the funny thing about music and the, the music industry is that unless things register either as albums or as, uh, in a way, as books, possibly, uh, the the knowledge is very diffuse uh, between practitioners and the idea of a canon that we've got in the visual arts and that big exhibitions at big institutions can kind of create and, and highlight, spotlight, that idea of a canon really exists either in traditional classical music, uh, I think it exists a little bit in academy, in the academy around teaching, around how knowledge is passed on, how scores, what scores might be performed in order to, to learn an instrument or to, to become a conductor. But I think one of the really interesting things, differences in a way between the, the sounding and the visual arts is that the, the canon, uh, sorry, the, the avant-garde in a way uh, sits much more distributed, much more uh, at a grassroots level, I think, when we're when we're talking about sound events and partly I, I wonder whether the market's less involved so you know we haven't got sound compositions uh, changing hands for a million dollars or for five hundred thousand dollars or for a hundred thousand dollars and the channels of distribution between radio and now podcasts between concert and recordings, uh, and even the different recording formats that that we've seen since 1968, uh, in a way, each of those works against the idea that that we can kind of end up with, you know, 24, 25 artists representing Australia uh, in the way that the field does in in the sounding arts. We've got the the possibility to uh, to think of 1968 as a as such a moment of uh, I don't know um, unrest and restlessness in in the arts and so I mean I don't know that it is the year of either multidisciplinary practice or interdisciplinary practice but certainly in the 60s the, the whole idea of audio visuality um, was really strong and there are a number of kind of a lot of references to kinetic uh, kinetic art and to to the idea of movement to the idea of uh, sound and visual rhythm in in the field show so the the relationship to for example visual music as a as a as an easy term to kind of think about audio visuality uh, is is a real option, an opportunity, and it, it exists in popular culture. I think at, at the time, you know, I have a sense of there being multimedia uh, performances kind of becoming becoming an important part of uh, rock events. Uh, but um, yeah, the the sense of a relationship between uh, ideas of abstraction and how they might manifest in in visual terms and how they then relate to sound terms because of course the idea of an abstract music uh, 
an abstraction within music is in, in fact a much older tradition and a much older terminology than the idea of an abstraction in visuality and a, an abstraction in visual art. So it, it predates that early modernist uh, period in, in, in Europe uh, in the early, early teens. Uh, the idea of an abstract music or that music uh, kind of sit outside the idea of storytelling or arts, outside the ideas of narrative or representation and, and really in concrete terms of foregrounding itself as the, as the medium and message and, and so on. Uh, I mean, all of that comes together as a type of formalism that painting uh, builds on. Uh, or painting and visual arts build on across the 20th century and and make really uh, kind of exp um, really clear claim claims for around around ideas of uh, formalism Greenbergianism for some to some degree I mean he's his writing is a shorthand uh, handle for a lot of those ideas uh, limited though it is I think uh, so there are some, I mean, for me as a practitioner, there are beautiful challenges to kind of uh, follow the visual to the sounding and the sounding to the visual. And in, in my case, to intersect the two and to really have the problem of not being able to quite reconcile them. Swiss curator Hans Ulrich Oberst recently suggested that the role of curating involves a daily protest against forgetting. You know, roles of curators vary greatly between institutions or, you know, place of work. And I guess at the National Gallery of Victoria, my role of it as curator involves making the collection accessible to the public, acquiring new works and displaying works um, through either the permanent collection and also through the exhibition program. And so my role as curator on the field revisited, revisited was a really interesting one because it was working on an exhibition which had already been curated. Um, the works were selected 50 years ago and so it's a really different method of working and the curatorial premise of the 1968 exhibition was to define an entire direction of Australian art which had not previously been tackled by a major institution and looked at predominantly emerging artists working in the hard-edge colour field style. So when working on a recreation, um, you know, the recreation allows the viewer to experience the curator's original intent in a contemporary setting. So it's a quite a different way in approaching um, an exhibition. To begin with, we had to look at our own collection and see how many works in the NGV collection were included in the original exhibition. And although we hosted it 50 years ago, we held three works. So it was a process of three down and 71 works to go. But in looking at it in terms of, you know, curation as a daily protest against forgetting, I think that something really important about a recreation is that it allows you to discuss the past. It allows you to discuss, you know, the original exhibition and how it was received and also its impact today. And I think that one important thing for, you know, the gallery when looking at this is it allowed us to discuss issues such as gender balance. And in 1968, um, only three of the participating 40 artists were women. And this 
you know, allows a real dialogue and an opportunity to discuss imbalance. You know, the 1960s, it's, you know, um, it wasn't just the art world, which was male dominated, but, um, you know, it was male, a lot of male domination, uh, dominated events happening in, you know, the art world. And this revisiting allows us to address imbalance. And um, while we curated the field revisited, we also curated a display of works by female artists of the 1960s and 70s who were um, producing work in the highest colourful style and who were making statements, you know, equally as strong as the male their male counterparts. And we've been actively collecting works by women of this period so that their work isn't overlooked or forgotten. And I think that's this idea of, you know, um, a protest against forgetting is this, reappraisal and readdressing and relooking at this exhibition allows us to look at you know what was that imbalance what does this imbalance mean what does this mean as a you know female curator working um trying to um look into these sorts of issues so i think that it's been a really interesting way to look at moments from the past in, in a contemporary setting so my second the second part of the question is how different is making this work now than in the 60s and 70s? Um, uh, uh, probably even more difficult in a funny sort of way. In the one, I was a lot younger, um, and there, there was amongst the people that that I mixed with, there was a great deal of excitement about this, about modern art and, and about colour and um, and so there was great enthusiasm, there was a great deal of neglect, but within the circle there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm about what the possibilities might be. Um, today, um, uh, I think it's even harder. Uh, some of the youthful vigor for some may have gone a bit, um, but the society at large um, never gave a shit anyway. But the, the art world, the people interested in art, um, have uh, been just as unsympathetic, probably more unsympathetic. So um, hard both ways. I mean, the good side uh, for me about doing non-representational art is um, there's been a lot done since then, and I now feel... So in the beginning, it was a tiny bit doctrinaire, when new when new things are invented, it tends to be a bit like that. Um, uh, but now I feel a little bit more liberated. I uh, I'm in the process doing some works that involve a, a bit more um, adventure with uh, perspective, which was not thought well of then. Um, and I feel a bit liberated because now 
all the qualities of non-representational art um, have been exercised, I feel uh, we can go back a little bit and pick up some things and use them differently. So for me, the adventure continues. And, um, and I just feel a little bit more liberated. I feel a little bit more lonely in some respects because all the great figures that had a major influence on me and a lot of them were friends have bloody died on me. <laughs> That's so irritating. They died. Clement Greenberg died. Anthony Caro died. Jules Olitsky died. Kenneth Nolan died. I'm cross with them. They've left me alone. <laughs> they haven't. Uh, and they were some of the more exciting. Larry, no, Larry Poons is still around. Um, Helen Frankenthaler. Um, these were major figures, and they've gone seriously out of fashion. Uh, and that's why the field revisited was such an extraordinary show because you had 50 years um, uh, to review something again, um, and that's very unusual, um, particularly a whole show. So all the fashions and the ideologies have slipped away and you've just got the paintings in front of you, or the works, rather. And that's exciting to test your eye and your judgment and your sensibility. And I thought that was a very exciting show. Um, I was appalled at what got written about it. I mean, the background noise was tedious and boring, and so few people actually addressed the works. They all addressed the context and all that sort of sociological bullshit. Um, and I thought that was very disappointing, that part. That's been a really interesting interesting thing of working on an exhibition which is 50 years old. I mean, one of the really fascinating things is just how contemporary everything still looks 50 years on. The works are just, you know, sparkle. And working on a recreation where you recreate it to the point of giving it spoil-covered walls. And um, curate, one of the curators, John Stringer, had travelled to New York um, and Europe as part of um, the preparations and inspiration and research for um, the inaugural exhibition of the NGV New Premises. And he visited Andy Warhol's factory and brought back this idea of these silver foil covered walls. And so being as authentic as possible in the recreation and bringing in ideas like the foil covered walls, petition halls, uh, there are a number of works which we weren't able to track down. Um, a number of works which were destroyed either by the artist or by accident. And we had lots of ways of how, you know, how do you deal with missing works? What do you do if a work has been destroyed? For a lot of the destroyed works, um, one artist, Normana White, she had found that there was very little interest in her work after the exhibition had finished and she was feeling a little bit disgruntled. It was a very large work. It didn't fit in her house. She had to hang it horizontally instead of vertically, a very large, large work. And she ended up cutting it up into um, 30 centimetre square pieces, taking it to a local incinerator and having it burnt. And she, she ended up recreating the work for 
Oh, wow. Field and um, we've now acquired the work from her. And so there's sort of been this closure for her where the work has now been recreated and then um, now acquired by the gallery. And that was one way of dealing with missing works. And for the works which have completely gone, which have been destroyed or um, the artist has passed away and where, you know, there's you know, no um, recreations. We only recreated works which we knew had been destroyed and with the assistance of the artist. And so there are a number of works which we're unable to include and um, the design team produced um, scale works using black and white images from the original catalogue to make these almost ghost-like memories of the work. So we've kept the, we kept the layout as close to the original as possible so that as you walk through the exhibition space, it was punctuated by these ghosts. In, in general, I mean, the, the response was incredibly positive and um, it's a little bit similar to when Attitudes Become Form at the Venice Biennale in 2013 mm. where they had the, um, I guess, you know, almost like outlines of the sculptures on the ground and this idea, you know, following that, that in a recreation, you know, absence just as important as what's included. Some people were confused because even though we'd written on the labels that they were recreations, facsimile of destroyed work, People don't always read labels, so there was um, confusion by some first of you know what these um, works on masonry, you know, fabricated works on masonite, you know, actually meant. Um, and that's also something which is always very tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Articulation um, those sorts of things. So I think actually it was. Um, I think the design team just did such a fantastic job, and it was very effective. And one of my favourite parts of the exhibition was um, standing out and looking at a particular group of works which included um, Peter Booth's missing work, um, which was, you know, had its ghostly image. And um, it was at exact point, it actually feels like, I mean, one of the photographs from 1968. And I think if we hadn't have included these missing works, then that sense of being transported back in time actually wouldn't have happened. And so it was incredibly effective in actually getting the essence and the aesthetic of the original exhibition. I have enjoyed reading the artist statements and discovering that it is extremely diverse. It's not a little bit diverse, it's extremely diverse. I mean, every single, not a single artist came, uh, artist statement referenced another artist statement. So that's 17 artists who wrote 17 completely different things, which were basically about. Um, how, what they're doing in their studio, so their process of making, is they're usually working something out, which is usually connected to an abstract thought. So um, one artist may be, uh, one of the artists is looking at all the infinite permutations of pi, and his form of exploration happens to take the form of cutting notches out of wood and making an artwork, which for him is one of those permutations of pi. Um, another artist is uh, exploring in, on a more conceptual slant um, the, the conceptual idea of pastiche. So he's created an artwork which is a pastiche of an artwork that he did 20 years ago. Um, and what, how that artwork changed from the first iteration to the second. Um, 
and I mean, so, oh, yes, I could just go on and on and on, but uh, that's basically what I wanted to um, explore. You've been listening to What Are You Looking At, a podcast by Contemporary Art Tasmania. I'd like to thank Anne Mestitz, Ron Robertson-Swan, Michael Grave and Beckett Rosenthal's for their thoughts and words on this episode. Beyond the Field Steel is closed at the Moona Arts Centre, but continues at CAT until Sunday, November 4th. What Are You Looking At is produced by Lisa Campbell-Smith and myself, Pip Stafford. Audio mixed down by Brendan Walls. Additional sound by Michael Grave and soundtrack by Josh Santospirito. For more information about CAT and our programs, head to contemporaryarttasmania.org.